Church, well, as you can see, we're diving back into the book of Acts, and so hopefully you will be, um, this morning's passage is on the longer side of things. Thank you for reading it, Lane. Uh, but you'll be greatly helped this morning if you have a copy of God's Word open um, with you so you can reference it as we go along here. Um, if you remember, the last couple of weeks, months, as we've been walking through this book, we've said sort of the theme, the melodic line, the theme that we see from one week to the next, from one text to the next, what we see God doing. The reason why God gives us the book of Acts could be summed up like this. We see that King Jesus extends his kingdom through his spirit-filled people as they spread his word. King Jesus, still on the throne, last week we came together and we, resur- we, we celebrated together the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. The book of Acts tells us the next chapter, how Jesus ascends to the right hand of Father and continues extending his kingdom as his spirit-filled people spread his kingdom through the power of his spirit and power of his word, okay? So this book is about kingdom expansion. The resurrection of Jesus means for us, the reason why we celebrate it is because it means for each and every one of us, there is a new way to live. There's a new way to live, the way of Jesus, This way is no longer in bondage to sin or subject to death, but rather it's marked by the newness of life. This true life, this abundant life, this eternal life is now possible and accessible to all who want it. And for us, as we consider to read the book of Acts, as we do this together as a church, we learn what happens as we submit our lives to this new king and he invites us and to carry on his work, okay? Let's, let's go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll dive into the text. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word as it comes to us this morning. We believe this word is inspired by you, that it is full of truth, and it is eternal, and it's useful for us this morning. And so, Lord, we ask that you would take this word, that you would write it on our hearts, and you would use it this very morning to shape us and mold us into the, into the people that you have called us to be. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If you were to take out your devices right now, don't do it. But if you were, just imagine with me that you're taking out your device and you're clicking on your favorite social media platform, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and you go to the search bar and you type in hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. What types of images do you imagine will begin to fill your timeline or your feed? What types of images do you suspect that you will see? I did it yesterday, and the first image that came up was with Martin Lawrence celebrating his birthday. A massive, beautiful cake, and the backdrop, a glorious home with an expansive view, very idyllic giving thanks and praise for his blessed life, surrounded, no doubt, by friends and family. My guess is that picture likely, for many of us, symbolizes what we would describe as the blessed life. What is the best life? It's beautiful places, amazing meals, new babies, new marriages, success after success, enjoying new technology, being part of good relationships. For most of the world, that is the definition of what the good life is. That's what it looks like to be blessed. Well, if you were to not you know, shift away from social media and open up the Bible, and explore the words of Jesus, you will discover 
a dramatically different definition or understanding of what the good life looks like, what it means to be hashtag blessed. Sounds like this, same author, Luke, wrote Book of Acts, also coined these words, wrote these words down from Jesus as he spoke them in Luke chapter six. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are, who, hungry, who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That, Jesus says, is the blessed life. Notice a few things. First, the blessing he describes, it's not shallow. It's not passing or temporary. It's deep, enduring satisfaction. This isn't the good feeling that warms us for a moment and then fades away. This blessing, this life is rooted deep in our being. This true blessed life, the life that Jesus offers, it is not temporary. So, who are those recipients who receive this type of blessing? Well, according to Jesus, this kind of blessing comes not to those who are rich or who are powerful, successful, or popular. Rather, it comes to those who are poor, hungry, who are weeping right now, and who are enduring persecution, suffering for the sake of Jesus. That, Jesus says, is the blessed life. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, these people know an enduring joy, a blessing that doesn't change as our circumstances do. This truth, this picture, we get to see firsthand as we read Acts chapter five. We get to see that life, that truly blessed life, play out here in this story, this story of the apostles' obedience to Jesus. The big idea, if you're to take away one big idea from the text, it's this. While the way of Jesus involves significant challenge, it also promises eternal joy. So, brother and sister, be bold in your faith. Or to put it another way, The Christian life is tough, but it is absolutely worth it. Let others get in on it, all right? That's what we're gonna see here in Acts chapter five. The Christian life is tough, totally worth it. It's your job to bring others into it. So let's get after it. What do we see here in the text? If you break it down, the first couple of verses, we'll see the first thing is, verses 12 to 16, that the power of the Lord is undeniable. The power of the Lord is undeniable. We see it clearly in verses 12 through 16. This is the third summary that we've gotten to so far of the early church in the book of Acts. The first one we saw at the end of chapter two. We saw the second one at the end of chapter four. Each summary paints this extraordinary picture of what the early church was look, what they looked like. A people that were marked by, by love, by, by grace. A, a people who, who were centered around the teaching. They saw deep community and life. They experienced tremendous growth and, and power 
power at the, uh, as they were filled with the Spirit. Now, if you were to go back and look at those other two summaries, you'll notice that those descriptions, the first two share something in common. That they both have a reference, or they, they show that at the center of apostolic life in the early church was the, the apostolic teaching. There was a focus on the teaching of the apostles, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then the next summary, Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The emphasis in the summary before us this morning, however, you will notice, unlike the previous two, it is not focused on the apostles' teaching. Certainly, that was a part of what was going on, but rather the emphasis in the text before us is on that of signs and wonders. Look at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Look again at verse 15. Bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the picture of this summary is that you see power coming from God, flowing through the apostles, and making tremendous change in their environment. They were conduits for the undeniable power of God. The power of God was on full display in the people of God. It was undeniable. This is not an isolated instance in the book of Acts. As we continue to read, we will see that this is indeed a pattern. We've already seen the pattern play out. At Pentecost, when they received the Spirit of God, some 3,000 converts immediately were added to their number. In Acts chapter three, we saw the healing of the lame man outside of the temple. As he's healed, what happens? They, they give a defense for the faith. P Peter proclaims the gospel, and we see that their number continues to increase by some 2,000 people. And this will continue. This pattern will continue. Signs and wonders will take place, and people will be in awe, mesmerized as what they're seeing these people do, and they will join them. This ministry helped bring people to Christ. It was one of the, along with teaching, one of the primary features of the early church's ministry. In fact, back in chapter four, verse 30, the disciples prayed that God would allow them to stretch forth, he would stretch forth his hand to heal and to do signs and wonders. They knew that this was happening. They wanted to be conduits of his power. Why? Because they wanted to see their number increase. They wanted to see the kingdom expand around them. And that's what God did through signs and wonders. He used it as a way to authenticate the message that they were proclaiming. So as they stood up and they said something like, there is new life possible in Jesus because he has resurrected from the dead and has ascended to God's right hand. As they proclaimed that message, people came forward and they were healed. It authenticated what they said was true. There is new life possible. And you too can experience the saving power of Jesus. Now here's the deal. Many of you may be like me. This is an assumption, why? Because you're attending church at Parkview, all right? My suspicion is that many of us have not grown up in a culture or a setting where we would see or say signs and wonders as they were in the early church are a prominent aspect, feature of our ministry today. Okay? If you're like me, 
Certainly, I didn't grow up in a tradition that celebrated or even recognized that signs and wonders were still possible. So as we read this text, one of the first challenges that we face as we apply it to us today is asking or answering this question, what does God still work like this? Now, if you approach it with some degree of suspicion and say, no, no, no longer does God work like that, my challenge to you this morning is this, maybe two things. One, anytime we limit God and we finish a sentence that starts like God can't fill in the blank, we are, I would say, treading in dangerous territory, okay? Anytime we limit I mean, if anything, as we read through the book of Acts, what should come leaping off the pages in this story, God can do whatever he wants. Most of us are here this morning as a result. We, our presence here authenticates that message, that God is still at work in our midst. Now, here's the deal. Do we live in a day and age or a setting where God needs to? Maybe our specific geographic location where he needs to work through that? I I don't know the answer to that question. But here's the other deal. The reason we pray when they're sick among us. You know, think of the last two years and there's people in your life that have come down with COVID and think about how we were crying out for God to intervene for them. Why do we do that? if not because we believe God can. So even though this may be different, do not discredit God's ability even today to just show off through you and me. It's possible. He gives, as he puts this display on power, he gives others evidence of his power You're also able to see in the early church, able to get a glimpse of what new life actually looks, what new life, fullness of new life will look like one day. And also for the believers, for those in their midst, imagine what's happening to their faith as they're watching God's power flow through them. It's being strengthened. It's being strengthened. So God had good reason to work through signs and wonders. Notice also that this is a strategy that God uses to advance his kingdom to seek and save the lost. A strategy is not launching a military campaign or a political campaign. It's not the development of some business strategy that starts with the who's who of the ancient Near East and zeroes in on those who have fame, power, fortune. But rather, this church's strategy looked almost identical to what Jesus's strategy looked like. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, 23 to 25, you get a summary of what Jesus did. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And all brought, they brought to him all those who were sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases, pains, oppressed by demons, having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Their ministry, the early church's ministry, looked just like Jesus' ministry. Seeking and saving the lost, proclaiming the message of the gospel, and living it out, displaying it. 
And church, if we wanna be faithful followers of Jesus, Bible-believing Christians, guess what? Your ministry and my ministry ought to look the same. It ought to look the same, okay? So we see this first picture of the early church really is a picture that looks like tremendous blessing. Man, people are being restored, healed, their numbers increasing, and the people, one of the responses of the people in the area is in total awe of what God is doing. But there's another response. You'll see early in the text, it says, none of them dared join them. Then it talks about, it seems like a contradictory statement, but it's not. It goes on and says how they were increasing. Well, when it says none of them dared join them, the them that it's referring to, you'll see that there's different groups of people being referenced in the early, in these first couple of verses. The them that it's referring to are all those who are opposed to what is happening. N- none of those who, as they see these, this new movement grow power, grow in power and in number, none of those who previously had the power wanted to join them. Instead, rather than being in awe of what was happening through these people, there was a group of people who were appalled by what was happening. And so while we see the power of the Lord is undeniable, in the next section, 17 to 39, we'll see that persecution from others is inevitable, okay? Verses 17 to 39. I'm gonna kind of walk through this story, try to summarize it, and try to identify some different application points as we go. First thing we see in verse 17, it tells us that, again, not everyone was in awe of what the apostles are doing, but some were appalled. Some were threatened. More specifically, we're told that the high priest and the Sadducees did not approve of what was happening. Now, the Sadducees, it's a, a group that we will see throughout our study of Acts. They're a liberal sect of Judaism, they only accepted, the Sadducees did, the Torah of the, as the legitimate scriptures, the legitimate word of God. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in eternal life. They didn't believe in supernatural gifts. They were also theologically, not just were they theologically different, they were also politically corrupt. And so the Sadducees sort of were playing both sides. They made a deal with Rome saying, hey, Rome, we agree that the temple is really under your jurisdiction. At the same time, they went to the Jewish leaders and they said, hey, we'll go along with the charade. You guys can maintain control of the temple. So they were trying to gain favor with both groups of people, Rome and the Jews, for their own gain. So because of this, we can certainly understand why they view what the apostles were doing just like they viewed what Jesus was doing as a significant threat. Not only were they theological, their theological beliefs being challenged, but they were also probably, I suspect more importantly, losing power, losing power. Day by day, this group is growing in number in favor with people. This movement is becoming a serious threat and the reality is their pride can't take it. They become, it says in verse 17, jealous. It's the motive of what sends this story in the direction it goes. They're jealous because the apostles keep preaching Jesus, growing in favor. And they're also, they're also angry because the apostles are accusing them of killing Jesus. So you can imagine there's a jealous hatred and anger that's growing up in them. And we shouldn't be surprised by this attitude towards the apostles. The ministry of the apostles was amazing. Again, they're doing fantastic stuff, healing people, loving people, sharing Jesus. And yet this is the response. It shouldn't shock us, church, 
that as we engage in the ministry of the gospel, as we see God's power flow through us, that there is a similar response that generate, is generated by people even today. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. We can be doing fantastic, good work that you would think the rest of the world would celebrate. But instead, oftentimes, they hate. It's the way it's been and the way it will be the side of eternity. So what do they do? They arrest the apostles. They threw them in prison. But we see that the Lord intervenes and the disciples are miraculously freed by an angel. It's sort of an ironic twist in the story. Here's a group of people that deny the very existence of angels and now they're confronted right in front of them with an angel doing the bidding of the Lord, doing the work of God. It's an ironic twist in the story. In verse 20, the angel's instructions to the disciples after they've been freed, go and stand in the temple and speak to the, temp to the people the words of this life. This is amazing. This, after all, is why they were arrested in the first place. You might suspect if you and me were in their situation, or at least maybe, for being honest, hope that the message from the angels would not be go and continue, but maybe a message like run and hide, right? That's what we would maybe suspect. However, they are instructed to return to the temple and continue to preach the gospel, specifically this Life. It's a really interesting way of referring to Jesus is how Jesus in the Gospel of John referred to himself. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is the message of Jesus. Go and proclaim it, to which the disciples did. Right back to the place of the activity that got them in trouble in the very first place. It's so important for us to see. It's a great picture of God's providence and man's faithfulness. Oftentimes, we can place safety and comfort above the Great Commission to go and make disciples, to preach the gospel. God is demonstrating, what I love about this passage is he's demonstrating both his tender care, his very presence. He's giving his presence to these men. Yet, they are con to continue in the dangerous and unsafe work of proclaiming Jesus. He has freed them from prison, but he's not freed them from the responsibility and the privilege of proclaiming the gospel. That is still their work. And these folks, they're all in. They go right back to that place, knowing exactly what it means and could mean for them. These are people who just saw their leader executed in the most painful and brutal way. And yet here they are knowing that they could very likely meet a similar fate. Well, folks, the good news for us is the truth of the matter is the same promise is, that was available for them is available for us. Christ, the work that he's called us to is exactly this work. And the promise he offers you and me is to never leave us, to never forsake us. He doesn't guarantee that things are gonna always go our way. In fact, what we see from this story, what we learn throughout the Bible is that our life will be tough. Persecution is guaranteed. Things will be hard. And our temptation is to bow down to the idols of safety and comfort 
and not be obedient. But when we do that, we actually, we'll see at the end of this, are settling. We're settling. Back to the story. Okay, what follows in verses 21 to 28 is somewhat of a comical spin on the story. How Israel's leaders come to learn the apostles are no longer in their cell. The high priest had convened a council and they're, they're ready to begin the trial. And so orders are given to bring the men before the council. As officers arrive to the prison, they find everything in order. The doors are locked. The guards are stay, standing guard watching over the cell. One minor detail. There's nobody in the cell, right? The prisoners have been freed. They're gone. This news is reported back to the council and we're told that they're greatly perplexed. What in the world is happening? Scratching their heads. While these leaders are scratching their heads, wondering what's, go what's going on, what their next move will be, someone comes with a report. Hey, those individuals that you thought you had locked up are now in the temple courts preaching Christ. And so what do they do? They quietly... Don't wanna make up too much of a stir, go. They don't lay hands on them, but they get them. I would love to hear how that conversation went. Would you guys mind coming, coming back to jail for a little bit? You know, I don't exactly know how that happened, but somehow they didn't have to use force and the, the apostles were agreeable and back they go. I mean, this story is full of irony. An angel who the Sadducees don't believe exists, responsible for all of this, political class who's used to calling the shots, known for their extraordinary wisdom, is looking absolutely foolish. Throughout this whole story, we see evidence of God's sovereign hand at work, orchestrating every move of the story. And it's a reminder that God can't be stopped. We serve an unstoppable God, and because his presence is with us, we become an unbreakable people. What an image. So the trial is what happens next in verse 27. Finally begins. The disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin and the high priest scolds them for preaching this name. Which name? Jesus. His accusations tell us a great deal about the effect of their ministry at this point. Their message had gone beyond the temple and was spreading all throughout the city, causing, as you can imagine, no little stir. They also charged him with bringing Jesus' blood upon them which I think is the real problem. They look like, they look like fools in front of all the people because they murdered the man that everybody else is celebrating and worshiping now. Peter made this charge several times in chapters two and four, and it's the name that, that presents a major problem for the Jewish leaders. The apostles' response is one of the more remarkable verses, really, in the whole book of Acts. You want us to stop proclaiming his name. This is their response, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. It's so important. This text is so important because it helps us as Christians understand how, they are to, how we are to live our life in relationship to authorities that God has placed over us. Did you hear what I just said? God has placed over us. Throughout the Bible, the Bible teaches the government does have rightful authority, rightful authority over the Christian, given by God himself. Romans chapter 13, Matthew 22. So as a result, humans, especially Christians, should be submitting to this God-given authority. Yet, those governments are not God and can occasionally overreach. 
make demands which go beyond the authority that has been granted by God. A government cannot compel one's conscience to believe one idea over another. A government which would forbid the worship of the one true God is the kind of government that should no longer receive submission. The apostles were not political revolutionaries. They were primarily concerned with spiritual matters. Government was not given ultimate and complete loyalty in their life. That, brothers and sisters, was reserved for God. Find ourselves in a setting where authorities, if we find ourselves in a setting where authorities are demanding we compromise the gospel, you might be asking yourself, when do you know when you should reject this, the authority of, another, of, a, of a government or an authority? You do that when they're causing you to compromise the gospel. Christians must remain faithful to God. Along with the disciples, we must declare that we will obey God rather than men. In verse 30 to 32, Peter takes the opportunity once again to preach this gospel, reminding them that Christ was crucified by their hands, raised by God's power, and is exalted to his right hand where he stands now as leader and savior offering forgiveness of sins and the newness of life. Their boldness in the face of such opposition is extraordinary. Take note of the apostles' example of faithfulness. They didn't negotiate or compromise, recognize the massive chasm between their message and the message of the council, their beliefs and the beliefs of those who opposed them. They didn't try to find some sort of middle ground. There was no common ground between those who reject Jesus and those who have submitted their lives to the resurrected Christ. The apostles recognize that. So Gamaliel steps up in verse 34, a wise man as a part of the council, somebody who's respected by all of the members of the council, but also throughout the community, known for his wisdom. And he interjects. He says, don't kill these men. At this point, you can imagine that the Bible tells us that they're filled with rage. The council wants to kill them. But Gamaliel steps up and says, bad idea. Bad idea. Tells the story of two other would-be messiahs and says, listen, we all know how that story went. Folks that were claiming to be the messiah had movements, killed the leader, they just eventually faded away. Then he makes this extraordinary claim. He says, listen, if this thing is of their own doing, it too, just like those other movements, will fail. But if it's from God, you can't stop it. And even worse, if you try, you're gonna be on the wrong side of God. Bad idea. Odds are he likely thought the movement would eventually just peter out. But we know that the story ends. Folks, as we consider this, I mean, what should strike us is the confidence and the boldness of these disciples. Faced with the authorities of their day. Probably offering one major threat after another. And yet these individuals cannot be stopped. Persecution, if you're gonna proclaim the gospel, is inevitable. 
So the question then is, how do you respond? The last point we see in verses 40 to 42 is that the apostles' persistence is commendable. The, the power of God is undeniable. Persecution is inevitable, but their persistence is commendable. Look at verses 40 to 42. The council eventually follows the advice of Gamaliel and they flog the men and then they release them with a strict warning. Do not speak this name again. The apostles' reaction to their persecution and warning is absolutely extraordinary and gives us a great, sort of sheds great light on the gospel that we have to proclaim. In fact, their response should arouse for us admiration and serve as an encouragement and an example that's worthy to follow. Response two ways. Verse 41, the first thing they did, we're told, is they rejoiced. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Second part of their response they continue to preach, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. What a remarkable image. It's one, honestly, that is so probably foreign for many of us, it's even hard to imagine. The apostles walking away from the Sanhedrin their backs are bloodied with the brutal beating they received, but their hands are lifted high. And the Bible says they are rejoicing. They're not broken. That was the effect that the council wanted, to break these men. But the opposite happens. They're not broken. They're energized, they're filled with joy. It's as if the persecution actually allowed them to move forward. Ministry done, it's a good lesson for us that ministry done by the power of the Spirit and centered on the gospel of Christ brings a, the type of joy that this world doesn't understand. Rejoicing in the face of oppression. They are in fact doing exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. I can imagine the disciples hearing those words at first thinking to yourselves, what are you talking about? When others speak poorly of us, when others beat us and try to break our spirit, rejoice and be glad. My guess is just a few years ago, it sounded like a foreign language. But here, on this day, they are embodying those exact words. Why can they rejoice and be glad? Because Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These individuals know this truth. They're experiencing that there is joy in suffering. Our suffering is connected ultimately to Jesus' suffering. 
Jesus dies on a cross and commands us, his people, to take up our cross. And when we do, we are connected with true believers from across the ages. To suffer for Christ is a part of our calling. It's a part of our design. It's a part of our DNA. It's our identity. And just like we are united when we're about to take this cup together as a people, it's a reminder that we are united in Christ's death. But we're not just we're not united in his death. We're also united in his resurrection and his life. So our suffering isn't a suffering that just dead ends. It leads us down a path which drives us into deeper fellowship and communion with the risen Jesus. It helps you when you are suffering for Jesus. When I am suffering for Jesus, now it may not look like it looked for the apostles. Odds are it looked more like shame, like mockery, like rejection or separation from friends and family. Whatever it looks like, the more we experience that for the, the sake of Jesus, this weird thing happens. We get closer to Jesus. And that's the center and source of our joy. Jesus himself says, what's eternal life? Knowing God and knowing Jesus. Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his, of his, of his suffering. What's his greatest joy? What should your greatest joy and mine be? To know Jesus. And when we suffer for his sake, we know him better. Some of you I know are familiar with John Perkins, 91-year-old saint and just a remarkable, remarkable man who um, has known suffering in his life. Um, beaten, brutalized in a Mississippi jail. He's a man who fought for civil rights, who actually came to know Jesus after he left Mississippi, he went to LA and got to know Jesus because his kid came home from VBS and told him the gospel. And he put his, his life and gave it over to the Lord. And since then, he has been actively involved, went back to Mississippi and involved in community development and racial reconciliation. If there's ever a person who has an adequate reason to be upset, be him. But rather, he deeply understands the love of Jesus and deeply understands the gospel. Listen to him as he articulates recent book that just came out of his called Count It All Joy, as he articulates the purpose of suffering. He says, this is the great paradox of suffering. Suffering drives us deeper in him. Suffering drives the roots of our faith deep, deep into the reservoir of his sufficiency. With each new privilege to suffer, our roots go even deeper in him. I mean, the world isn't taught with each new privilege to suffer. Our roots go deeper and deeper in Jesus. This is what's happening as these individuals are walking away, backs bloodied for the sake of Christ. They saw their suffering as a reason for celebration because it drove them deeper into Jesus. And we should too. They didn't love their lives, their comfort, this world more than they love Jesus. This story is evidence to that fact. They were willing to put it all in line because at the end, what mattered most to them 
What should matter most to us is that we know Christ and are filled with the fullness of God. That's the greatest joy anyone can ever experience. Think of what comfort this passage must bring to the suffering church. I mean, in the West, we face a degree of suffering, but we have brothers and sisters throughout this world who know it on an entirely different level. And because they do, they know Christ on an extraordinarily deep level. What comfort this must bring to the suffering church in North Korea, in Iraq, in Syria, the church in China or Ukraine. So many places around the world today who face a similar risk, put their lives on the line to worship the God of the Bible in a place that is hostile to the gospel. What comfort. For us, the threat's different. Like I said before, mocked, shunned, intimidated, shamed. Whatever the degree of suffering we might face, the reality is we have good reason to rejoice. We're in good company. And what do they do? They go back and they just keep telling people about Jesus. They just can't be shut up. And I think of, you know, as you read through this story, it's really remarkable the degree of confidence these individuals have. The most powerful people can't stop them, can't threaten them, can't terrify them or scare them, can't slow them down. Why? Because they have communed deeply. They are convinced that the message they're proclaiming is true and that there is no greater message that this world has to offer. And the, the reality is, church, we're not, the only thing that separates us from them is time. It's the only thing that separates us. This is our story. This is our Jesus. These are our people. We too should have great confidence that while life may be tough, whatever this world throws at us, it will be worth it. Because God makes available for us a joy that is unsurpassable. And our job as brothers and sisters is to let others in on what we got. <laughs> Hopefully this story encourages us as a church to take one more step in that direction. I mentioned before how communion is an opportunity for us to remember uh, what our life cost Jesus. And he commands us to remember this and to celebrate it. Because if this didn't happen, this joy that we just got done, the joy that we see in the passage, it's not available, it's not accessible for us. We stand outside of the covenant promises. But because Jesus gave up his life, spilled his blood on the cross, died in our place, we too can have new life, new beginnings, new possibilities. And the righteousness of Christ is now imputed on us as he takes on our sin and our shame. It's an amazing reversal. So if you need communion elements, uh, there's some in the back. You could just uh, put your hand up and I think Steve will come around and give you one if you need some. Otherwise, let's go ahead and take these out. Uh, we'll start with, uh, take out the bread and I'll read this scripture and we'll take it together, okay? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Church, this is the, the body of Christ given for us, let's take and eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as, you, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, this is the blood of Christ spilled for you. Let's proclaim his death now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, um, Lord, just the reality that you have entrusted with us the most remarkable message. Lord, a people who don't deserve it, people who are weak, who are frail, um, who often drop the ball. Lord, but we thank you that um, you also pour out your spirit to us. Lord, and you work, you choose to work through us. And I pray this, this story would just remind us of that fact, that while you can't just snap your fingers and, and do what you please, when you please, Lord, you choose to work through our weaknesses, through our insufficiencies, through our excuses, to extend your kingdom through this world. And I just pray that we would be all in. Lord, and we would be people who would embrace not just your message, but also your mission and be quick and ready to extend your kingdom in this little part of earth that you've given us. We love you and we ask these things in your name.